the fastest way, the most effective way to cut through habitual delusion is never going to be with the mind alone because our whole existence has arisen enmeshed with delusion. Approach of using the body as well is much more rapid, much more effective. Um, we have an old saying in Zen, you can't wash off blood with blood. And uh, what that points to is it's, it's almost impossible to change your state of mind with the deluded mind itself. But again, the powerful approach of using the breath, the subtle energetics, the posture, all of those things in unity in our training, as we learn in Zen, um, is such a, a, an effective approach, which really cuts through delusion in a much more rapid manner. Midomor Roshi is the abbot of Korinji Monastery near Madison, Wisconsin, and guiding teacher of the Korinji Rinzai Zen community. Medo Roshi began Zen training in 1988 and practiced under three Rinzai Zen teachers, Tenzan Toyota Rokoji, Dogen Hosokawa Roshi, and Sozan Miller Roshi, all of whom are in the lineage of Zen master Omori Sogen Roshi. He received Inca, or permission to teach, in 2008 and travels widely, teaching and leading retreats. Meta Roshi is the author of two books, The Rinzai Zen Way, A Guide to Practice, and the soon-to-be-released Hidden Zen, Practices for Sudden Awakening and Embodied Realization, both published by Shambhala. Before his ordination, Meto Roshi traveled internationally for many years as a professional martial art teacher. You are listening to Sit, Breathe, Bow, a podcast for practitioners. Each week, leading Buddhist teachers share life experiences and insights to help guide your meditation practice, as well as your life off of the cushion. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr. This podcast is sponsored by the Quantum Online Sangha, a virtual Zen practice community of the International Quantum School of Zen. Members of the Online Sangha meditate together, study with teachers, and participate in workshops and courses to develop their practice. We've launched a study group for people interested in gaining a deeper understanding of the sutras and scriptures most important to the Zen tradition. And listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are able to try for a month for only $7 by using the promo code SBB when you sign up. To find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org slash studygroup. So, Mado, I'd actually like to start with your upcoming book. Uh, you know, we'll see when it gets released, given the pandemic we're in right now. But I think it's scheduled for October of this coming year. But I was really drawn in by part of the title. Uh, it's called Hidden Zen Practices for Sudden Awakening, Sudden Awakening and Embodied Realization. And there is something about the way that you talk and uh, you teach that really focuses on the body. And I think this is, well, for a lot of beginning students anyway, not something that's talked about that much other than, you know, follow your breath and have correct posture. And I'm wondering why you're focusing on embodied realization. Like, where does this come from? And, and actually, how does that even, 
How does that play into our our study of of Zen, study of the way? Sure. Well, it comes from the Buddha. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what we have to say about Zen or uh, you know Buddhist practice in general is that it's uh, coming out from a yogic practice tradition, and uh, you know we know the kind of practice that the Buddha did uh, in terms of uh, meditation practice, not being a purely psychological or conceptual undertaking, but it engages and it encompasses the whole, uh, what we would call the body-mind or the entirety of the human being. So not just, uh, again, the, the, the mental uh, aspect of our existence, but also the breathing. Uh, of course, we're familiar of working with the posture, the subtle energetic system of the body. Uh, all of these things are harnessed and used in what I would call uh, broadly yogic spirituality. Uh, to help us experience our existence in a different manner. And uh, Zen is, is a tradition which stresses that so strongly. I think uh, one of the things the book is meant to address is a, a kind of tendency in the West, probably coming out from our cultural and philosophical background, and probably coming out from uh, some of the history of, of how Zen landed here. Um, tendency for Zen to be viewed as, again, primarily a psychological undertaking. And of course, we even see in the West um, a growing movement of conflation between psychotherapy and Zen, which tends to re reinforce that kind of tendency. Um, I would really like the book to point out to people that uh, our practice has to be something that engages the whole body if it's to have any hope of cutting fundamental delusion in the manner that Buddhist teaching says we must. So what does that mean if we can just push this a little further, I mean, so I, actually, I, I do want to read this quote out of your your last book. Delusion is not something we learn after we're born, nor does it manifest solely within the mental continuum. It is, in fact, something habitual with which we have been enmeshed for endless eons and many lives. In this life now, it is revealed not only in our minds, but within the very fiber of our bodies. It manifests as deeply ingrained psychophysical distortion, jike. And so it is with the body as well, with the mind. Our battle to be free, uh, the battle to be free must be waged. I was just really kind of blown away with that passage. You know, it's important that as Zen practitioners that we become familiar with basic Buddhist teaching, I think. And um, jike, that word we usually translate it as habit energy or karmic traces, um, the Sanskrit is vasana. Uh, from the standpoint of the Buddhist teaching, we have to recognize that uh, our, or I should say what we're called to do in practice is not to return to some kind of ideal innocent state that we had when we were children <laughs> you know from the standpoint of buddhism uh we weren't innocent we were children we were the very fact that we were reborn and that our existence uh exists uh, is just evidence of that kind of uh, ongoing uh samsaric uh delusion so what that means is again practice being not just a a, a mental undertaking we it has to address the entirety of the existence that arose in that process of samsaric becoming. And that includes our bodies. So, okay, so that's kind of philosophical or, or Buddhist teaching standpoint. But from the standpoint of practice, again, because Zen is a yogic tradition, uh, or I should say the power of Zen is that it is a yogic tradition. The fastest way 
the most effective way to cut through habitual delusion is never going to be with the mind alone because our whole existence has arisen enmeshed with delusion. The approach of using the body as well is much more rapid, much more effective. Um, we have an old saying in Zen, you can't wash off blood with blood. And uh, what that points to is it's, it's almost impossible to change your state of mind with the deluded mind itself. But again, the powerful approach of using the breath, the subtle energetics, the posture, all of those things in unity in our training, as we learn in Zen, um, is such a, a, an effective approach, which really cuts through delusion in a much more rapid manner. So that has always been the Zen approach. And I, I would say that has always been the Buddhist approach. But again, because uh, in the West of some certain factors, uh, I think it's something that hasn't always been transmitted effectively, or it isn't something that we grasp easily because of our sort of underlying philosophical background or, or even Judeo-Christian background. Um, our undertaking is a material undertaking. It's a physical undertaking. Or what we say is that Zen is accomplished through the body not uh, in spite of or in denial of the body, if that makes sense. So for years, you also worked as a professional martial art teacher. And I'm curious how that training, I, th I think you were an Aikido, maybe there was more than just Aikido, but you, an Aikido teacher. And I'm wondering how that informed your Zen practice or if it was, uh, you know, mutually evolving and how, where I just love this idea of the body as being this informing space, which I, I agree with you. I, I think a lot of the Western world is trapped in this. I think, therefore, I am. And you know, I I don't want to discount the power of that investigation, but allowing the body to reveal itself, I think, is also really incredible opportunity for us. Yeah, I, I I agree completely. And um, again, my 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 small critique of some of the Zen approaches we see in the West that have been more most deeply uh, influenced by psychotherapeutic disciplines, for example, is that uh, they seem to discount the body in that crucial manner, and and they seem to discount the kind of traditional Buddhist understanding of what our goal is of liberation, in favor of something a little more prosaic. Um, maybe a sort of short-term uh, attainment of resilience in the face of life's <laughs> challenges, short-term meaning for the duration of this life. You know, not that that's a, uh, not a wonderful thing to have, but um, if we're going to look at our whole existence and, and from the standpoint of the Buddhist project of liberation, yeah, the body has to be addressed. And the, we know that the Buddha did that and that that's what we're called to do, I think. But as far as martial arts go, one of my teachers, uh, Toyota Rokoji, um, he was a Zen master. He also happened to be an Aikido master and, and martial arts was something I was interested in. It was never my intention to be a professional martial arts teacher, but certainly in both Chinese and Japanese and, uh, as well as Korean cultures, there is some historical linkage between those kinds of disciplines and Zen training. And there's reasons for that. Um, the ways in which the breathing and the body are trained have some crossover. Uh, we can't say the intention is always the same, but there is a place where they meet uh, so that was attractive to me, and that was one of the reasons I, I began to train with him and became his disciple, actually. And I, I think I saw this uh, maybe in a video, or I'm not exactly sure where I saw this, but you were talking about the rise of, of the Rinzai tradition in particular, perhaps being 
connected to the rise of a warrior culture and sure so when when zen came to japan it was the beginning or it was right around the time of the kamakura period which is when the warrior class really uh, began its ascendancy um so you had uh chinese chan masters uh fleeing china fleeing the mongol incursions into china and uh, arriving in japan and teaching you also had of course japanese students going to china but it was right around that time again when the, what we would now call the samurai class sort of took over um so for that reason you had this uh meeting between uh really cultured and educated chinese monks and what were basically rough and tumble japanese warriors and who who yet had a deep interest in zen and and uh, uh, desire to uh, find some kind of spiritual insight to inform their own lives and uh somehow those two groups of people i think found that they had something in common in terms of how they trained and and the the sort of uh, discipline that they were willing to undertake to further their goals so i guess that we could say that that's the beginning of the so-called intersection of uh, zen and martial arts or warrior culture and zen in japan that intersection has been overdone i think a lot of popular books even talk about zen as the religion of the samurai that was not true but there was something in common between these two groups and uh, we see zen becoming very influential in governmental circles in japan for centuries afterwards well, and one connection that I've heard you make uh, is the use of uh, well, the use of art. Let's say it that way. Rather, I was going to say iconography, but let, let's uh, the use of art as a teaching tool. And I've heard you, you know, talk about well. Very often, we we see the Buddha um, sitting beneath the Bodhi tree, and we're just uh, here. He is released and free, liberated, right? Very peaceful. But part of the journey I've, you've talked about, along the way, you, you see these very sort of fearsome images that actually is a teaching tool for us to, to think about how we engage in our practice as well, like the the fearlessness and the the intention. And I'm, I was just so intrigued. I just also don't hear a lot of Zen teachers talking about art as a teaching tool. You know, we have scriptures and sutras. Where Where is art playing into this role? Sure. And again, as Westerners, I think uh, we tend to look at art, Buddhist art, for example, iconography. And if we're taking a very conceptual approach, we can say, oh, that's the uh, Bodhisattva of compassion. And that this image represents this and this and but those are just concepts in terms of how we use the body in training the art encodes information as well if we know what to look for um in terms of the mm. the path of practice yeah I, I think anyone who's a beginner the first time they sit down to do meditation what they start to experience is that whatever's just under the surface starts to bubble up and there they are sitting with all of their stuff they thought it was supposed to be a peaceful spiritual <laughs> thing. <laughs> and, and there they are sitting in front of the mirror, right? We've all had that experience. We all continue to have that. Yeah, we have that experience continuously through our practice. You're peeling away the layers of the onion, wondering if there's ever an end to it. And um, the kind of energy that is required for that undertaking uh, is not that of the peaceful Buddhist statue that's at the, the main altar in the monastery. That we can say that in some sense that's our potentiality or that's our goal. But the kind of energy that's required to walk that path, 
we see much more in those kind of fierce or wrathful figures. Um, so in Japanese monasteries, I, I believe it, uh, in Korean monasteries as well, certainly in Chinese ones, you often find wrathful guardians at the gate. We call them the Neo, uh, two very fierce looking guys bristling with uh, uh, energy and very muscular and ferocious, almost demonic faces. And, and again, from a conceptual standpoint, someone might say, oh, they're the guardians of the gate. They're not that, though. They are at the gate because they're meant to give you or show you energy you need to go in <laughs> the energy you need to begin the, the path mm. which ends at the buddha statue so yeah we can use iconography that way um there was even a famous uh, zen teacher in japan suzuki shozan who uh was quite well known for that approach of using statues and images and physically trying to catch the the kiai uh, the energy from them so that one could not just be looking at an image but could embody it could become it um that's an interesting place we can say zen and some uh vajrayana or tantric practice almost crosses over in the sense of uh not looking at an image of a deity or a wrathful guardian but arising as that being oneself uh, having that energy arise within one's mind stream very interesting practice yeah and that was what was so interesting when i heard you talking about art that way i think people are more familiar with uh, Vajrayana or, you know, it's a sort of Tibetan style that uses, um, you know, a real complex array of imagery. And I mean, God, they're so colorful. And sometimes I'm quite jealous. I look at that. I'm like, wow, that's so amazing. What they have. Uh, and, you know, here we are in our very plain, you know, there's an austerity. Um, but I, I really enjoyed your, you're embracing this by the way this is this is these are here to help guide us oh yeah we have so many tools in the zen toolbox and uh the title title of my upcoming book hidden zen which is revealing so many of those it's not these are not hidden in the sense of secret or suppressed they're just hidden because people don't realize we have these tools <laughs> i would like them to become better known that we have right. so many things like this we can use well, you actually even talked at one point about uh, you know one of these statues where the the belly had sort of shifted because the way his practice had uh, you know bringing the energy to the hara had um, developed his belly in such a way, and even looking at the belly, it's like yeah, by the way, this is what it should look like if you're after you know after you've done training. Yeah, and you know when I talk about this stuff, I'm always hesitant because I don't want people to look down at their bellies and feel badly or <laughs> start comparing each other. <laughs> you know, again, because because what we do is a yogic discipline, and if it's right, yeah. rightly done, it does engage the body. It engages the breathing in in particular cultivated ways. Um, it's natural that we start to see change in the body. And there are recognized signs of that kind of fruition that we can see in physical bodies of experienced practitioners or not. And from that, we can know what kind of training they've done. And again, the interesting thing about the iconography is it does encode some of that. Um, the ways that the bodies are portrayed are not just simply artistic conventions. I mean, they are that, but they arose those conventions for a reason because they reflect the reality of practice. And that's something, uh, again, if we can call it, if we want to call that a hidden kind of knowledge, okay, it's not secret, but 
if it's not pointed out to us, we may not realize it. And then we can't use that tool. So I think it's important to talk about that stuff. Right. Now, I, w- I would like to just shift a little bit to the, the chapter in your first book, the, the Rinzai Zen Way. And you're talking about, uh, well, the chapter is called The Power of Vows. Mm. So, you know, we live with this Bodhisattva vow. Uh, and this, so there was this passage I really liked so much. The, the first vow to save others reminds us that the path we travel is walked in community with all the other boundless sentient beings, high and low, large and small, wise and deluded, near and far, and forsaking none. Now, do you say it's Tore? Is that how you say it? Tore, yeah, Tore. Is that Tore, yeah. Uh, Tore exhorts, to state it concisely, by the power of the vow of great compassion, all karmic obstacles disappear and all merit and virtue is completed. Uh, and then you end with, uh, or he ends with, the first requirement for trainees, therefore, is to let go of the I and not to cling to their own advantage. And I'm just, I, I think this is really good. And, you know, as we repeat this vow, right? All sentient beings are boundless. I vow to save them. How is a, a person inte- supposed to understand that when it says, I vow to save them, and we're being exhorted to let go of the I and not cling? How, how do you explain that transition when you're working with new, with new students? Well, the first thing I'd tell them is not to worry if they don't feel that way. <laughs> because <laughs> yeah, it, good. Yeah. It's, it's very proper and natural that when we first start training, we're pretty obsessed with ourselves. Um, we're there because we have a certain amount of angst or we have a certain amount of transformation we'd like to experience. Um, we'd like to change. Um, so it's normal that that focus is that way. And in the beginning, when we recite something like the Bodhisattva vows, we may feel like we're just giving them lip service and it's hard to really feel it or believe it. But the thing that Torei, Torei was a famous student of Hakuin, the very famous Rinzai Zen master in Japan. The thing that Torei is, is just really stressing is that we have to return again and again to that motivation, which is larger than just I, even if we don't feel it in the beginning or even if we don't believe it. We just return to it again and again. And I forget his exact words, but he says that if we do this, then gradually, in the same way that if one walks through a fog, one will gradually get soaking wet over time without noticing. Or gradually, the way that a garment or a robe hung near incense will gradually start to take on that smell. We will be transformed by that. So the first requirement for trainees is to let go of focus on I and uh, hope for benefit for oneself alone doesn't mean necessarily that that's a sudden thing. It's something that we can approach gradually. But if we return again and again to those vows, and 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 the, the four vows, again, uh, it, we can take them in a conceptual way, but we can also look at them in an embodied manner, trying to experience for ourselves, what are they pointing at? They are actually not just they don't just have a surface level meaning. Each of the four vows is a direct pointing precisely to that experience of so-called boundlessness or emptiness or no self. I mean, what does it mean that we say sentient beings are boundless? <laughs> that has, It doesn't just mean they're without number. 
or infinite in number, it means something more profound than that. So to, to say that, that we have to return to them again and again is, is just Torre's very kind way, I think, of pointing out to us a way to keep our practice on track and to prevent it from going off the rails. If we always return to those vows, we're never going to be far from the correct path of practice. Yeah, the vow for me, it's so funny. I, I, I don't know. I, I just feel so attached to the vow in a lot of ways. Like it's my, it's almost like my compass. Um, and I feel like when I'm, when I'm straight, when I'm straying, I can sort of look at the vow and be like, oh, well, I'm, I know that I'm off because this isn't, I'm just not connected. And, and that's the purpose of vows and precepts, right? That's but, a, they're a nest for us to protect our practice. Mm-hmm. That's a great way of saying it. It's a nest for us, right? Oh, I stole that um, <laughs> from <laughs> my actual first Zen teacher. I trained very briefly retreats with him was a venerable Sheng Ying, famous Chan master. And uh, he said on one occasion that I recall that the precepts served as a nest for our realization, for our practice. And I loved that so much. So. Uh, I, I stole it promptly and still use it. Yeah, I may steal it from you. <laughs> it's a great one. And the great thing about the four mm-hmm. vows, each of them encompasses the other. So it could be that one of them speaks more to someone than the others, but uh, it, to, to bring one of them to fruition is to accomplish all of them. <laughs> so I think at different times in our practice, one or other of them may speak more to us. Right. I think so, for sure. Now, another thing in that that passage that that I read um, that you start with is, so you say the first vow to save others reminds us that the path we travel is walked in community. And I'm wondering if you can say a little bit more about that word community. I think people take it very literally sometimes as the sangha, which is certainly one way of looking at it and an important one i I really believe in sangha but i'm wondering if there's a another level i mean you say community with all the other boundless sentient beings and i'm just wondering what that means for you when you you really have that community sure um you know again there are multiple levels of meeting of course and uh in the most obvious way not only community with the people we practice with, our Dharma brothers and sisters and so on, but also the recognition that Zen is something that takes place and flowers within human relationship. So the teacher-student relationship is indispensable. The relationships between Dharma brothers and sisters are indispensable. That That is where the, that's the soil that the practice happens in. So that's an important thing to, to remind ourselves about. But the realization to which Zen points um, when we give rise to that kind of change in our way of experiencing and are able slowly over time to integrate it and to embody it and to to seamlessly non-depart from it in that state uh, well you know in in rinzai zen for example we we have a practice that's focused on what's called hokyo zanmai the uh, jewel mirror samadhi what is the jewel mirror samadhi that experience is that all the so-called phenomena whether inner or outer that we encounter are not different in the slightest from our own original face 
everything that we encounter or experience is precisely my own nature. Literally, to experience that way. Not, not, that's not a poetic way of speaking. Mm-hmm. In that fruition mm-hmm. of, of our practice, I can never say that I'm alone. I could never say that I'm apart from anything. And I could never say that there's anything that's not my community or my responsibility. Uh, so it, I, it's very important that we point our practice toward that kind of fruition. And if we find that our practice is not opening in that way, it's tending to make us more isolated. Uh, sometimes there's a kind of practice where we get a little drunk on the feeling of of increased freedom and power that we feel from practicing and it's actually something that's divisive or dividing us from others we need to watch those things and again that's why tori says just always go back to the four vows you can't go wrong yeah i love the word responsibility in the sense of um you know i think there can be that like a nirvana sickness almost where you just the liberation (laughs) it's so great that's one of the things that the Mahayana critiques, right? So <laughs> that's why we have something like the four vows, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. You've also spoken about the role of the teacher. And you've spent the past, well, better part of a decade now, I guess, building a very intentional, uh, rigorous training community for, for priests. and. I'm curious about you know how you understand like in your it seems almost like part of your vow from some of what I've heard you say in terms of like if we're going to make this happen then we need you know we need to have a really solid footing for for teachers and I'm wondering what your commitment is and and why this is appearing in, in the way that it is for the you know, such hard training and, and what your, your purpose is with this. Uh, in, in one sense, I'm, I'm carrying my, my late teacher's dreams. That's part of it. Um, Toyota Rokoji uh, had a dream to establish a rigorous training monastery here in the heartland in the Midwest, in Wisconsin, obviously. And uh, he tragically died quite young and could not accomplish that. So I would say part of my initial feeling of obligation was, well, my teacher wanted to do this, so I should do it. But I also feel that uh, while it's extremely important to continue to explore very creative ways of expressing Zen training and insight in society and and looking at new uh, technology that can help us spread the teachings, all of those wonderful things which are happening, at the end of the day, if we don't have some number of people who just really dig in and do the very intense embodied practice over a period of decades, then we will lose the tradition completely. Um, there's, there's no substitute for that. Um, many people who are lay practitioners have so many other responsibilities and they can practice Zen in so-called daily life. But if someone would like to really use their human life to its greatest potential, and really embody Zen realization as much as they could, that daily life, even as a layperson, is not going to look very normal. <laughs> They're going to have to do a lot of practice. We have this conceit, I think, in the West that, um, uh, oh, we, we can accomplish this uh, still 
kind of living my normal life and so on. No, you have to practice a lot. There's no getting around that. You can do it as a lay person. You, you, you can do it in the midst of family and career. <laughs> but again, that normal, you can do it in normal day of life, but that life is not going to look so normal compared to a lot of people. You know, uh, Ho Koji or Layman Pong, the famous lay practitioner in China, he's often held up mm -hmm. as the sort of archetype of a realized lay person. But we have to remember what he did. I think I wrote about it in my book. I mean, he took all his belongings, put them on a raft in the middle of the river, sank it, and started wandering around as an itinerant basket maker, <laughs> visiting Zen teachers. So that's our model model of a layperson. I'm not saying people need to do that, but right. we need to at least have places people can go where mm -hmm. uh, for a certain amount of time each year, they can go deeply into intensive retreat. There's just no substitute for that. And those kind of places, monasteries, can also be places where... Uh, Someone who really feels that their life's vocation is that uh, can be trained deeply to carry the tradition. We can't lose those things. So that's that's the purpose of the place. And I, I'll tell you, we don't have people breaking the doors down to get in here, but it's here. And if someone feels feels called to come to it, um, just as <laughs> I, I know in the quantum tradition, you have places like that. I, it's very important, I think, that we don't lose that even as we explore the other side, which is making the teachings accessible, letting people engage at whatever level they want to, uh, spreading the teachings in a very wide way. We need to hold that core. Otherwise, we're going to lose something. So you're also very active in this Facebook group, this Rinzai Zen discussion group. I'm wondering, I don't, I don't know exactly the right word for it. You know, typically I was you know, I went to seminary and stuff. So I would kind of call <laughs> it a ministry if I were in a different setting. But like, uh, uh, you know, you've got this sort of online ministry or this online um, community that you've built for people to start to explore, or maybe they're already serious practitioners or, you know, somewhere along the path. And how are you using this Facebook group to nurture people along as well. I think a lot of people think poorly of social media, and but from what I know of you, you're really thinking of it as a tool to help people on the way. Yeah, and I, don't, I can't say I completely enjoy it. I mean, I've certainly have had contact with people I wouldn't have met otherwise, and and that some relationships have turned out to be quite important. So I, I have to give credit to social media for that. And I also have to say that uh, the monastery I'm sitting in right now as I talk to you, was built with fundraising that was largely driven by Facebook. I mean, Facebook was our tool to let people know about it and to get people to come up and help build the place and to donate money. Um, it wouldn't have happened without that. So again, the, my desire to maintain this core of traditional practice and a certain rigorous intensity of practice, which I think is crucial not to lose, doesn't mean we still can't make it accessible to people uh, in whatever way they feel they want to benefit from. So if if someone's contact with Zen is nothing more than being on the Facebook group, getting a little something conceptually from what's written there, from our ministry, so to speak, as you said, and they feel that that helps their life, I have no I have no problem with that. I think that's wonderful. And and to me, uh, you know, I, I'm, I consider myself a Buddhist. I, I somewhat of a traditionalist in terms of a Buddhist teaching. My belief or my feeling is if someone even hears the word Zen, that's a that's a seed. That's a karmic seed which is planted. It shows that they're fortunate that that even happened. It also means that in the future it could blossom into something more. So 
any way we can get anything out there, I think we have to take advantage of. As long as we don't lose the other side, uh, as long as we don't think that those tools are a substitute for the actual practice, uh, which needs to be done in a quite rigorous way for someone who's serious about it. I remember when I first really heard about it, it was just a, mm -hmm. a friend of a friend uh, who was coming to practice where I live now. And that was in 1998. And it took me two years after actually, or uh, yeah, two years before I moved in, but it was like a year before I actually came to practice. I think, I think that's a mysterious thing. I had the same experience and uh, somehow those seeds appeared or those doors opened for me in ways that I, I can't really explain. So I feel like I have to, or we should as much as we can provide those seeds for other people. And in some sense, something like Facebook, you, you cast the seeds and you forget about it. And somehow one or two of those people show up a year later, just as you did. Really interesting, really amazing. You know, like Rinzai planting, famously planting cedars uh, at his temple for future generations. You know, we don't get to necessarily see the harvest or the mature tree <laughs> that we're planting, but we're still called to do it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Sit, Breathe, Bow. I hope you found the conversation with Medomor Roshi encouraging and helpful for your practice. You can find out more by visiting the website for the Karinji Rinzai Zen community, which has branches in the United States and in Europe, at K-O-R-I-N-J-I dot org. Roshi also moderates a very active Facebook group for Rinzai Zen, you can find the links for the Karinji community, the Facebook group, and for Meta Roshi's books in the show notes. A special thanks to our sponsor, the Quantum Online Sangha. Listeners of Sit, Breathe, Bow are able to try a month of the Zen study group for only $7 by using the promo code SBB. The study group offers a close reading of the sutras and scriptures most important to the Zen tradition, to find out more, visit quantumzenonline.org slash studygroup. And don't forget to use the promo code SBB when you check out. And please consider subscribing and leaving a review of this podcast. It helps introduce us to new listeners. I'm your host, Ian White-Marr, and I hope you'll join me again next week. <laughs>